1: Hi, my name is Doc Stull, and welcome to New Books in Jazz. The prolific and peripatetic vibe player Cal Jader was a fixture in the San Francisco Bay Area Latin jazz scene for four decades, until Jader's death of a heart attack at the age of only 56 in 1982. Jader, whose father was a vaudevillian and his mother, a classical pianist, was a wunderkind tap dancer and was already performing on stage at age four. Jader won a local Gene Krupa drum contest in high school, served in World War II, graduated from San Francisco State, and made early recordings as a drummer with Dave Brubeck and Paul Desmond. But Jader, whom jazz pianist George Shearing called a percussive genius, soon became enamored of Afro-Cuban rhythms. Jader's melodic vibe playing and his collaborations with Willie Bobo, Mongo Santa Maria, Armando Peraza, Pancho Sanchez, and many others helped popularize and revolutionize the small group Latin jazz sound. Here to talk about his new book, Cal Jader, The Life and Recordings of the Man Who Revolutionized Latin Jazz, published by McFarland & Company Incorporated 2013, is Duncan Reed. Talking to Duncan Reed the author of Cal Jader, The Life and Recordings of the Man Who Revolutionized Latin Jazz. It's great to have you with us on New Books and Jazz. As you know, I grew up in the Bay Area, and I was a big Cal Jader fan and was really happy to read your book because there wasn't a lot out there about him. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book about Cal Jader.
0: When I was growing up, my dad had a collection of uh, 78 records. A, he was a big jazz aficionado. He's from St. Louis, and he saw a lot of jazz artists, you know, that are very well known, like Charlie Parker and Lester Young and Stan Getz, and even befriended some of them casually. Um, he was a painter and sometimes would uh, trade his artwork to them, you know, for um, various things, you know, performances and. He knew Charlie Ventura, so I was exposed to that as a kid. He would play the '78 records. I wasn't really uh, uh, into it at that time, but I I liked what I heard. And then later on, when I was 18, it dawned on me this this is really good music. Um, and my mother was the one who was aware of Cal Jader, and uh, uh, that's how I got into it. And that was uh, a little bit uh, later um, I was aware of him when I was in my late teens but um, I didn't I, he wasn't really on my radar yet uh, as far as listening to the music uh, that came later again from um, buying records for my mother because she was really uh, into his music so that's how I got into it I don't know that I have ever
1: read such a detailed account of the the arc and trajectory of a jazz musician's life. You seem to have every gig and every date and the circumstances surrounding it. How long did it take you to do this?
0: Well, um, I started it, uh, I got the idea for it late in 2004, and I began work on it like probably uh, the early work anyway, November 2004. And then, in earnest, I started doing more interviews. Uh, the following early the following year, um, fortunately, my my mother was friends with uh, Benny Villardi, who played with Cal in his early mambo quintet, and that's I I that kind of gave me an inroad uh, there, with the interviews, and I uh, also knew um, a jazz musician named Chuck Medcalf, uh, jazz bassist, and he gave me some numbers, and then it went on from there. And so that's how I was able to get to talk to people. I was very fortunate that I had, you know, some connections in the in the jazz world here in the Bay Area. Um, as far as all the gigs and documenting everything, I, yeah, it took a long time. I, it took me eight years to write the book. Um, I was working another job at the time. Um, and so I couldn't devote, you know, 100% of my time to it. That's Part of the reason. And also, it's my first book, so I kind of was learning as I was going along how you write a biography, and I was reading other people, and it was a learning process. Um, so, uh, as far as the gigs, I didn't, I did the best I could. I didn't, as I say in my, pre- my preface, uh, I didn't get all of them. I did, you know, it's very difficult, you know, when you go back that far, particularly. Um, But I did look at a lot of old newspapers and magazines and, of course, the interviews with all of Cal's former sidemans and and colleagues. uh, That was a big help as well.
1: We talked to one of your colleagues, Derek Bang, in my last interview about uh, another great Bay Area jazz musician, Vince Giraldi, who, who of course, played with Cal Jader. and. The, the book did fill a gap because it's hard for me to believe that he Calciator hasn't been around nor Vince Garale for th- almost three decades, uh, and um, so it's a good thing that you that you did it uh, did the book because the book convinced me. Uh, certainly, that he had a profound effect on the popularity of Latin jazz. And and I want you to talk a little bit about that, because the strain throughout the whole book are the, the people that, that Cal Jader Uh, brought into his fold and the demographic that he affected on the West Coast, in particular the college audience, Um, and then of course his musicianship. Many people commented on in the book what a wonderful, sensitive musician he was. Tell us a little bit about uh, Cal Jader, his early life, and how how a Swedish guy became such a percussive genius and became so interested in, in Latin jazz.
0: Well, he came from a family of performers. Uh, They were in, his father was in vaudeville and his mother was a classically trained pianist uh, when his father met her. And he, uh, she was thinking of becoming a concert pianist, in fact. But uh, after he married her, he, uh, the father, Callum Sr., brought uh, his mother, uh, Victoria, into the world of vaudeville she would play the piano he was a dancer and an actor and Cal so Cal was in a an environment of performers early on and from the age of two he was you know beginning to be trained by his father to be a dancer so um, he said Cal said himself in interviews that um, it was that early training as a dancer that helped him develop his natural sense of rhythm, which, of course, led to his, you know, um, being success- very successful as a musician. Um, he was put into the act. Actually, they were on a traveling, they were a traveling vaudeville troupe, and that's how Cal was born in St. Louis, because uh, both of his parents had, were, you know, were living in San Francisco at the time. And uh, they went on a tour and Cal was born in St. Louis and they remained there for a couple of years. They, I guess they were doing a circuit in that area and just stayed. And then uh, they came back to the Bay Area and at the age of four, Cal made his debut as a tap dancer. <laughs> so uh, that's how he got his early exposure. And um, he also was trained by his mother uh, on the piano and um, he... Uh, didn't like that so much uh, because she would use a ruler if he didn't want to do it she would whack him with the ruler he wanted to be out playing softball uh, with his friends but uh, you know later he admitted that you know he was glad that he had that training um, and he had an experience when he was an adolescent where um, he would perform with his mother. He would tap dance and she would play the piano and they would do these recitals. Um, and, uh, you know, it's at various places, little theaters. And in fact, there was, they had a little theater at their house, um, because they had a tap dancing studio in San Mateo, both of his parents. And they would teach ballroom dance as well. But Cal would do these recitals with his mother and he did one at San Mateo high when he first got there. And, uh, he was in a sailor's outfit, and everybody in the audience, which is made up of uh, uh a lot of boys, they booed him and hissed at him and they called him a sissy. And uh, he was humiliated. He left the stage, he, and uh, after that, he, he just put his shoes in the closet, <laughs> and his parents uh, couldn't talk him out of it. Um, his father was gone by that time. He had a stepfather, Keith Evans, who was... a also a musician. He was a piano player. and But they couldn't talk him out of it. and uh, But that led to his getting into music. Uh, he took up the drums after that by listening to Gene Krupa albums and um, various other, you know, Benny Goodman and various other big bands at the time. So he really taught himself. That was his early entry into music
1: that that whole idea of him yeah. teaching himself uh that's kind of a strain throughout the book too that, that he would yes. he would come up against these these guys uh, Paraza and Mongo Santa Maria and 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 people like that and he was like a sponge he he, he would yeah. you know, study them and and pick up their rhythmic patterns and uh that seemed to be he he was doing that his whole career wasn't he
0: Yes, uh, Dave Brubeck said that uh, he was Cal was one of the most natural musicians he ever knew, and uh, yeah, Cal just seemed to have a natural facility for it. Yeah, you know, I mean, some people can work and study very hard all their life and become decent musicians, but they don't get on that that level that Cal was on. That it just where they're just naturally attuned to the music, and uh, they just play. In an incredibly nuanced style, and uh, and they just have an ear for what sounds good. They're able to put it together. And that's what a lot of his you know people that were involved with him you know noticed was he just knew how to make things sound good. He knew how to put things together so uh, that that it would appeal to people. And also, it was a great artistic achievement for himself at the same time. But he got his he got his uh, start with Dave Brubeck, uh, as I noted in the book. Well, even prior to that, though, he was playing in Dixieland bands with Merv Griffin. <laughs> Some people may not know that, but he grew up with Merv uh, Griffin from um, elementary school. So they went to St. Matthew's, which was a Catholic school, and they played in Dixieland bands. Merv played the piano. Cal would play the drums, and. Uh, He did that for a while, and then after he got out of the war, um, World War II, he was in the Navy, Um, he actually did a gig when he was in the Navy at an officer's club, he played the drums, and then after he got out, he went to San Jose State, and then eventually transferred to San Francisco State. At San Jose State, uh, he had his only formal training in music, he took lessons from Walter LaRue, who was a... Uh, worked for the San Francisco uh, Symphony at the time. He was the lead timpanist and Cal took lessons from him but those were his only formal lessons Um, and eventually he joined Dave Brubeck's octet, that experimental octet and then uh, Brubeck um, that that group didn't get a lot of gigs because of the experimental nature of the band Uh, a lot of people were not attuned to their sound and so they, you know, Hubeck would reform it and and break it up and so forth, um, you know, depending on, you know, how things were. And he eventually formed a, a split-off group, a trio with um, Ron Crody, bass player, and Cal on drums. And that's how Cal really got his, his first exposure. Um, and he took up the vibes just uh, prior to joining Babe Brubeck, as I note in the book, uh, Lionel Hampton um, invited him to sit in one night on drums. He wanted a second drummer, and he invited him you know, into the band, but Cal said that he wanted to make use of his GI Bill and get his education, so he didn't uh, go on, on tour with Hampton, but he did start, uh, again, studying the vibes on his own. And he debuted them with uh, Dave Brubeck. So he was playing the vibes and the drums with Dave Brubeck. And then, as I know, note in the book, there's a pivotal moment where they're playing at a club called Zero's, which was on Geary Street in, in San Francisco. And uh, Armando Peraza, um, who happened to be in town because Slim Gaylord... He was in Slim Gaylor's band. Slim Gaylord came into town and then did a gig there, didn't pay Praza and then left. And so Paraza was penniless and sweeping the floors of this club. The club owner took pity on him, let him sleep there. And uh, one day he said to Dave Brubeck, he said, this kid can really play bongos and conga drums. Did you let him sit in? So he did. And Cal was there and was just immediately taken with uh, the rhythms. That uh, Peraza was producing. Um, Paul Desmond and Dick Collins were also there, so it was like a quintet. Brubeck had a quintet, and and as according to Brubeck, um, Cal took lessons, you know, informally with uh, Peraza, and that he just really became enamored of, you know, the Cuban sound and wanted to integrate it into the group. A lot of people don't know that, but that's when Cal's interest first started, and that was you know, here in San Francisco.
1: So that was San Francisco. What year was that, Duncan?
0: That was uh, early in 1950. I'm not sure the exact date, but, you know, maybe early March, but definitely early in the year. Okay. So,
1: and and that, that was interesting to me because, you know, San Francisco was kind of known for the Dixieland revival bands right. that were going, and Oakland was kind of yeah. known for maybe the blues but yeah. the, the Brubeck connection and the the kind of, they you know, they call it West Coast jazz, and there's all kinds of implications, you know, and people read into that. But it was a different right. kind of jazz, wasn't it, than what was going on on the East Coast with people like Tito Puente and people like that.
0: It's very well, different. Yeah. yeah, it was different. Uh, Tito, of course, Tito Puente had an orchestra. So he had a really big sound. You know, he had a full horn section, a full percussion section with timbales, you know, bongos, congas. And so it was a really big sound. And um, and Cal uh, didn't get exposed to that initially. His first uh, exposure to a group with that sound, the mambo sound that was popular at the time, was Perez Prado who was from Cuba and he his initial success was in Mexico. And so when he first toured the United States, which was I believe was 1950, 51, uh Cal did go to see him and was aware of him. Uh, so that was his first exposure to that. Um, and then of course you know uh, right around the same time, probably a little before that he met Peraza and then was exposed to, uh, Perez Prado, but um, it was, you could see the very early influence of Cal's interest in, in the Cuban sound in uh, a recording he did with the Dave Brubeck trio called Profidia. Um, if you listen to that, you'll notice that Brubeck is playing in the, the Cuban style and that Ron Crody has a nice groove going and uh, Cal is playing the bongos on there. And um, so if you listen to that, that's the very earliest example I know of a small group, particularly a group of that size, you know, a jazz group incorporating, you know, the Cuban influence. So, uh, and then when Cal left Brubeck after he had a swimming accident in Hawaii, uh, and Brubeck was in the hospital, uh, in Honolulu, uh, Cal was offered a contract, uh, by Max Weiss at Fantasy Records, and he said, why don't you join, why don't you, uh, you know, make your own trio? You and Jack Weeks, who was the bass player at the time, he had replaced Ron Crody, who had to go to the the war in Korea. So they came back. They only waited like maybe a few days as Brubeck was recuperating, and they told Dave that uh, they were going to split and come back to San Francisco, and Cal put together his own trio. Um, with Jack Weeks on bass and initially uh, John Marabuto on piano for the first several months, and then Vince Guaraldi in the fall of 1951 is when Guaraldi joined. And you can see in his early recordings that influence. On a he did a song called Chopsticks Mambo, which you know the old piano lesson did that we've all heard, <laughs> but he he did it very differently. Um, it's really interesting the way, you know, he put that arrangement together. And uh, both Weeks and Givaldi seem, seem to be really on the same page with him when you listen to the song. And he also arranged Hoagie Carmichael's Ivy to have a little kind of a Latin tinge to it. Uh, and he plays the bongos on that. And it's interesting, on Chopstick's Mambo, he also plays the cowbell and the bongos at the same time, like when Garaldi is, is soloing. So that's a real early example of, of what Cal was doing. Yeah, it, it's a real early example of how Cal was pioneering that influence in the small group sound. You, you didn't really hear any jazz groups of that size, certainly. a trio was doing what he was doing.
1: The other thing you mentioned, too, was that this uh, kind of connection with Brubeck and the influence in playing on college campuses, that you were actually bringing a different demographic into the appreciation of jazz. So you had the small group thing which was different for the latin sound but then because they were touring and they were they were playing on college campuses you had a whole different demographic coming in and of course jazz clubs in san francisco between what after world war ii and and through the 50s it was kind of a golden era wasn't it so people were going yeah. to jazz clubs
0: oh absolutely yeah there were there were uh Quite a few uh, that were, you know, particularly in North Beach, along Broadway, you know, various clubs popped up, like, like you mentioned in the post-war years, uh, particularly in the 50s is when they started coming out. The most famous of which, of course, is the Blackhawk, which Cal was Cal's home club for for many years. He first played there with Dave Brubeck. In fact, Brubeck was the first jazz musician to play at the Blackhawk. And, uh, and Cal was in his group at that time. Yeah. And yeah, Brubeck, I think, with his recitals at Mills College when he first formed the octet, and then his, you know, playing at the College of the Pacific in Stockton, and being really interested in taking jazz to college students in listening concerts. Uh, jazz musicians had played swing dances and things like that at colleges, but for people to sit down and listen to jazz, I think Brubeck was really a pioneer in that area, and Cal certainly, after he became a leader, uh, you know, picked up on that and he really enjoyed playing for a college audience. He liked their enthusiasm; they accepted what he offered and were really enthusiastic about his playing ballads, which he said was not always the case when he was in a jazz club. So, and then afterwards, he it really enjoyed talking to them and their youthful energy and the exposure, you know, uh, that they were getting to what he was doing and also his exposure to their, you know, their enthusiasm for jazz.
1: I don't remember if you mentioned this in the book, Duncan, but it, when you were talking about that, it, I I was raised in the era of, you know, the Young People's Concerts with Lenny Bernstein, who was a big fan of, of jazz, of course.
0: Was oh, that yeah. going
1: on, too, when they were on the, on the college campuses? Were they educating at the same time or talking about the compositions as well? Uh, You you mentioned, of course, uh, that jazz as listening was kind of a different phenomenon.
0: Well, I guess, I mean, Cal talked about it informally. Like, for instance, after a concert, he would talk to the faculty members who also were interested uh, in what he was doing. Um, And the students would come up and ask him questions. It wasn't so much like there was a formal class or anything, but it, it, they were just very interested in what he was doing. And uh, he was happy to talk to them. Cal was always very accessible to people. Uh, he was not somebody who had a big head and, you know, was aloof. Uh, he was very approachable. So it was more on an informal basis, really.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you use the word ambassador, but uh, that you really got that feeling. I mean, I got that feeling when I heard him play and relate to audiences. That he he was just really a great jazz ambassador because he was just such a pleasant, upbeat uh, guy, and um, so that uh, he, I think, he really turned a lot of. People onto jazz, you know, not only because of his musicianship, but just because he had the you know that personality, uh, that kind of warm, ebullient personality that yeah, uh, exactly. made you feel good. Yeah, it really made you feel good when you uh, you heard his music. Talk about the Monterey Jazz Festival and the relationship with Jader and the Monterey Jazz Festival, and in terms of exposure.
0: Well, yeah, that's an interesting story because um, Cal, of course, knew Jimmy Lyons who co-founded the Monterey Jazz Festival with Ralph Gleason, a noted Chronicle columnist and downbeat writer. And uh, Cal knew Jimmy Lyons way back when uh, when they had the Dave Brubeck octet because he was a big, big proponent of Dave Brubeck's music. And uh, he had a jazz show called Lyons Busy Uh, way back in those days, which was like 1949, 48, 49, 50. And so he was really promoting the local jazz scene. And then after he founded the Monterey Jazz Festival, he and Cal were already very good friends. And he naturally wanted to bring Cal in on the ground floor. So in 1958, when he was proposing the idea of having a jazz festival in Monterey, he actually had Cal do the first... Preview concert for that. So the festival hadn't even started in '58, and Cal did a preview concert in July. I don't know too many of the details, but I do know that it took place. Um, and then, of course, later in the fall, in October, Cal participated um, in the first Monterey Jazz Festival, which I believe was October 3rd and 4th, 1958, and. Cal was supposed to perform several times, but because they had so many acts and things ran over and, uh, you know, the scheduling didn't work out quite as well as they had hoped. But Cal did end up coming on, uh, I think it was on a Saturday at 1 a.m. <laughs> and, um, actually he came on, I think, just after midnight and played till 1 a.m. And Buddy DeFranco, the, the very uh, great clarinetist uh, who's still around, by the way. And uh, he sat in with Cal and they did a, a wonderful uh, jazz concert which featured an extended versions of Summertime and uh, Charlie Parker's Now is the Time. And both were about 13, 14 minutes long and featuring great improvisation from, from uh, Buddy DeFranco, uh, Vince Guaraldi, and Cal himself. And I think even Al McKibben, the bass player, got into the act as well. And then they had a Latin jazz finale when Mongo and Willie joined and they played Kubano Chant in Tumbao. So that that really wowed the audience. And uh the critic John Tynan, who was covering it for Downbeat. And uh that day, that you know, Saturday was the best, you know, as far as um the money they were taking and that was the best day they had. Overall, they only made a slim profit, but it really showed people, um, you know, that the Bay Area could put on, actually the Monterey Bay Area, I should say, um, could put on a great jazz festival. And, uh, the following year, um, Lions wanted to make sure that that he uh, got a greater profit margin. And so he did another preview concert again with Cal and in April, and that was held at the Carmel uh, Sunset School auditorium. And that's where Cal's two albums, Concerts Concert by the Sea, volume one and two came from. And a lot of people are familiar with those records and they were really seminal records. Uh, for Cal, because it really gave you an idea of what he offered uh, the cool swinging jazz, uh, his wonderful ballad touch, and the Cuban influence.
1: Talk about Cal Jader's uh, development throughout the 60s. Uh, again, there are allusions in your book about, you know, this was kind of the beginnings of rock and roll where the market was starting to change. San Francisco was starting to change North beach. um, You had uh, folk singers who were gaining popularity. Where did Cal's music go um, in that decade of the, of the sixties?
0: Well, um, initially uh, like in 1960, Cal was interviewed and Cal was not a big rock and roll guy. Initially, you know, he, In fact, he said in an interview in 1960, he thought it would pass. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, of course, uh, it didn't. But um, as time went on, Cal, like other jazz musicians, in order to survive, um, he adapted. And Cal was very good at, at adapting Uh, to whatever the musical trends were at the time, without losing his integrity. He still maintained his artistic integrity and what he wanted to offer, but he would incorporate whatever the current sounds were. And so that's what he was... He eventually, in 1968, decided to go electric um, in the sense that he got an electric bass player, uh, Jim McCabe, and um, also Al Zuleika, who was his piano player, starting in 1965, initially on acoustic, he had Algo Electric. So he was playing the electric piano. and Cal made that transition there. And he actually did quite well with it for someone that was initially reluctant, you know, to incorporate that sound. Um, he still maintained, you know, what he wanted to do, but added, what was going on at the time, which was a more, the electric sound was more popular because of rock and roll. Yeah. Talk a little bit about,
1: um, his qualities as a musician and a a band leader. Uh, I know in the, in the interviews throughout your book, uh, there's pretty good uniformity of, of what people said about working with him and what they got, from him and what they, what he gave to them.
0: Right. Well, the thing that, as a band leader, the thing that he offered was, uh, when you came in, um, he, of course, he expected professionalism and musicianship, but he was willing to listen to the ideas of the sidemen. That was important. He was willing to collaborate with him, It didn't mean he would use all your ideas, but he was willing to listen to them. And I think the sidemen really appreciated that. They also appreciated that he was very direct. Um, he was a perfectionist, but not of the real demanding, you know, uh, yell at you on stage kind. He didn't believe in, in doing that. He would talk to people about, you know, what his arrangements were and what he wanted. And so the sidemen knew what Cal wanted. Cal was very clear about the sound that he wanted, the harmonics and everything. And so, but he was also very open to listening, as I as I mentioned. And, and another thing the Sidemen appreciated was that he gave them space to solo, you know, particularly when they were playing in live, you know, concerts and club dates. Uh, they really appreciated the fact that Cal was secure enough in his own uh, abilities that he was not worried about whether they were going to take over the band because they, you know, uh, soloed and wowed the audience. Cal enjoyed seeing his side men have success. And I think they really appreciated that. And that of course led to their own success in, in many cases after leaving the group, because they were allowed to blossom. Um, you know, some examples, of course, you know, uh, On the Cuban side would be, you know, Mongo Santa Maria, who said that, you know, in seven years with Tito Puente, um, you know, he didn't get that opportunity to really showcase himself. He, of course, was in the orchestra and Tito, he said, took most of the solos and didn't really want to feature, you know, people like Mongo. Who he knew, who he thought would upstage him and so forth. But Cal was not worried about that. He featured Mongo a lot and Willie Bobo on Timbales. And they both really blossomed under Cal. In fact, Mongo said, I learned more in a year from Cal than seven years with Tito Puente. And later on, after they left Cal, they both became successful band leaders. And I think that's an example. Also, Michael Wolf who played with Cal in the 70s, a young jazz piano player, same thing. He allowed, Cal allowed him to do his thing and he gained confidence and then went on eventually to become a leader. So I think that quality uh, of nurturing his sidemen, uh, their talent, and wanting to feature them, uh, I think really was probably the best quality that um, that he had to offer as a band leader that and his ability to listen. As far as his musicianship, um, I think uh, the qualities that people liked the most were his sense of time. He was always right on the money, right on the beat, all the time. Uh, People were just amazed, you know, that he rarely, you know, missed a beat, you know. Uh, Pancho talked about that. He said, do you ever play a wrong note? (laughs) He said to Cal, Cal said, yeah, I do, but I cover it up pretty well. <laughs> yeah, but you you wouldn't notice it. You know what I mean? And also his his ability to play a ballad is you know he, the way he could render a, a beautiful melody and enrich it with his own his own harmonies. Um, he you know he was very inventive that way. He, he could always add his own touches to you know the theme of any song, and. Uh, and his introductions to the songs he would often come up with himself. And there was just this beautiful, um, sense of, uh, harmony and, uh, his wonderful, wonderful way that he was attuned to the melody. Uh, and just if you listen to his playing, also the nuances, um, just the little touches that you don't often hear from other vibists. Um, Gal was a very subtle player. He didn't, always believe in playing a lot of notes. He was very judicious about that, and that's another thing that was appreciated by his side men. They really enjoyed that quality. Um, Cal's expression was breathe. So he believed in, you know, little moments of pausing and silence where you build anticipation as you're creating the music and also in playing delicately, When necessary, that's why he became such a great balladeer. Is he just uh, had this wonderful, delicate touch all the way up and down, you know, the scale? Just, just uh, to me, that's what I really loved about him. You know, along with his, of course, his great time.
1: Maybe was that early tap dancing experience, you know, where you're yes. just, uh, it's moving from the ground up through your whole body. you know. Yes, uh, yes, yes
0: exactly. In fact, Cal mentioned that in an interview 1953 interview with Ralph Gleason, that that was really where he got his rhythm being a tap dancer.
1: Yeah. From the ground up. That's interesting. Yeah, it's exactly. not from the mallets down, but it was from the ground up. Yeah, that's great. I always felt that way when I heard him play ballads, too. Uh, a lot of those Brazilian um, songs that he oh, did his own right. interpretation Right, yeah, like Monitor Carnival.
0: Kind of yeah.
1: Yeah, just uh, really, yeah. really lovely. And you mentioned, too, in the book that he was one of the first to actually, in a small group setting, to Latinize standards or even popular tunes that he was very good at at doing that, oh. at arranging them to sound as if they were Latinized.
0: Yeah, yeah. He just really, see, that, that goes to his ear, you know, which, you know, that's another thing. You can't learn that. He just had this incredible ear, and he knew which jazz standards, you know, and Broadway tunes, whatever they might be that are in the jazz canon, he just knew which ones would work you know, with a you know, by putting a Cuban arrangement on it, you know, adding the Cuban rhythms, he just had a knack for that. And also when he would play mambo tunes, like for instance, um, you know, plenty Philadelphia mambo, he knew which one, which tunes of that nature would work well with a jazzy feeling in them. So he would do it both ways. He really had a knack for that. And he really popularized that. And, uh, I, I think, you know, his methodology, I think a lot of people followed that afterwards. He he really was the, I think, maybe he wasn't the first one to do it, but certainly he really popularized that and became very adept at it, and people looked at the way he adapted those tunes.
1: You mentioned um, in talking before that, you know, Cal Jader was a, f- a pretty modest guy and a very open open to collaboration and, and wasn't worried about being upstaged. Um, there weren't a lot of allusions in your book about himself feeling about his own legacy, for example. Um, and that seemed to be a strain that in, in your subtitle, for example, you said, The Life and Recordings of the Man Who Revolutionized Latin Jazz. And you don't often hear Cal Jader's name mentioned as somebody who revolutionized Latin jazz. No, um, you, don't. you
0: um,
1: And, that's and point. he wasn't really a, a self-promoter, was he?
0: Not, No, not, not really. I mean, of course, he put himself out there and he played gigs and he toured all over the United States and even out of the country on occasion. So... But yes, he, in terms of like doing, he would do interviews, but he always was very conscious of not wanting to appear egotistical or to, you know, blow his own horn. And so, I mean, I think, and naturally he probably was a humble person, but I think there was a a real consciousness of not, because he didn't like that in other musicians. He didn't like if they became too egoistic and, uh, but I think you know in the long run he you know he would have it would have helped him if he had said something um, and I know he was very intelligent and articulate in his interviews. he had a wide variety of interests in in art as well as music uh literature. but I think if yeah, if he had just occasionally mentioned what he was doing a little more. I think people would have noticed, you know, I think people like Dave Brubeck spoke more about what they were doing. And I think that really helped them. So, yeah, I would agree with that.
1: Mm-hmm. He, um, he you don't talk a lot about his personal life, um, but he, being on the road and, and just kind of the nature of being on the road all the time, his family life, it wasn't wasn't easy, particularly for his children. Uh, he yeah. definitely had an alcohol problem. Um, what was that like? In, in talking to his kids about um, having a father that uh, was a musician and was on the road, uh, maybe that that's the only father they ever knew. So that's what they grew yes. up with. But uh, certainly not uh, not a conventional lifestyle.
0: Oh uh, no, not at all. Um, and it was very difficult, particularly in, you know, when they were young. Uh, the daughter was, uh, Liz, uh, Elizabeth Jader was particularly close to her father. So, you know, when she was a young girl, she would cry every time he left. Um, so, and he would leave and he'd be gone for two weeks, even a month at a time. You know, then he'd come back and he'd be gone again. Um, so yeah, that was very difficult on the family, and um, yeah, uh, and on the marriage too. Uh, I wasn't able to talk to Pat Jader um, because she had she died just before, about five months before I started the book. But uh, Liz does discuss that it, it, it you know it did put a strain on the marriage um, because you know of course his wife had to take care of the kids while he was gone and was saddled with that responsibility a lot of the time, um, even though she she did say that, that Cal was a good dad when he was around and, oh you know, really had um, a connection with kids in general, with the neighborhood kids, and was very playful and would tell stories. And... But, yes, it was very difficult with the family, and, of course, his drinking, you know, um, which started early on, uh, was very hard on the family. Uh, and, you know, as I mentioned in the book, of course there, there were groupies. And, um, when you're on the road for a long period of time, I don't, uh, Cal was not, uh, someone, one would think of as a ladies man necessarily, but, you know, female fans were there and he was on the road. So that tends to happen. Um, and, uh, you know, it's hard to resist it when it's still available. And, uh, so that, that put a strain on the marriage too. Um, Liz told me that, uh, you know, they, they would argue about that. Um, so yes, it was difficult on the family. Uh, there's not much on the personal side of things because, simply because I wasn't able to talk to the mother, who was reluctant, I heard, to talk about that anyway. So I may not have, even if she had been alive, I may not have been able to get into it so much. Um, so I mainly had to talk to the kids. And, uh, yeah, so there is a gap as far as what went on in the early marriage. Um, but, yeah, that as far as what happened later on, that... That kind of sums it up. Liz did get involved with her dad's touring when she uh, graduated, you know, when she was in college. And then after she graduated, she did go on some tours with him, got to know the musicians, you know, and uh, was, you know, very much a part of that. And he was welcoming to her. Um, the son Rob was offered uh, by Cal to be a roadie, um, but he wasn't really interested. He kind of. Was having some trials and tribulations as an adolescent himself. <laughs> yeah,
1: yet uh, you know, I remember an anecdote in our family. Uh, Duncan, my my grandfather told this story that uh, he was in sales and he wanted to get into vaudeville in the twenties, and he was on a park bench and he was talking to Ed Wynn, the old vaudevillian, and. Edwin was going well. This is back in the 1920s, late 1920s. He goes, "Well, vaudeville's on its way out, and the movies are going to replace on that. And besides, you're on the road all the time, and you're drinking constantly, and all kinds of women." And my grandfather said, "That's exactly the kind of life I'm looking for." But uh, yeah, <laughs> in 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 any case, uh, as as a. Uh, as a non musician you know growing up, I always kind of uh you know kind of envied and probably romanticized that that life on the road but uh um you know the more biographies you read you know it's it's, it's a it's a hard life yeah you uh yeah uh, it's, it's yeah, a very exactly. difficult life and you don't get enough sleep and uh it's uh you uh you sure don't make the money that you that you're led to believe, uh, maybe if you're a rock star, but uh, yeah. it's, uh, it was a yeah, tough life for for jazz musicians in the in the fifties and sixties. Uh, yeah, I mean,
0: uh, right. yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, uh, you're right. There, it was very difficult. There were a few exceptions, of course, that those that you know really made it big, and you know, and, and you know, and Cal did have his hit Soul Sauce, and uh, he had his best year. In 1965 financially um, where you know the I think he sold uh, well over a hundred thousand copies of that record and uh, that was his of course his biggest hit his signature song and um, and the album itself was you know was, was a huge hit um, and so he did Make a fair amount of money that year, but yeah, you're right. It, even so, in general, uh, he you know he wasn't like raking it in um, every year throughout his career, but he did make a good, I would say, middle class, upper middle class living, and lived in in Millbrae, a suburb you know south of San Francisco. So he was able to provide well for his family and have a, a you know good standard of living. Um, but it was a hard, you're right, it was a hard life. He wasn't always playing in prestigious venues necessarily. And, um, but he did, he always managed to do a combination of concerts. He would, this is interesting, he would play for really large audiences and, you know, like at the Monterey Festival, play in front of 7,000 people and then, or at Madison Square Garden in front of, you know, even more people, uh, you know, and then also play in clubs in front of uh, one or 200 people in a more intimate setting. And he would always sell out the clubs because he, be, he became a name, people were familiar with him, and he had such a large following. People would be waiting around the block, you know, whether it be at the Blackhawk or the El Matador or, you know, in, at Redondo Beach, uh, <laughs> At concerts by the sea, or the lighthouse in Hermosa Beach. You know, he he always packed the clubs. Shelley's Manholm, also in Hollywood. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, staying in the hotels, and and then of course, jamming with other musicians. That was, you know, what you did. And uh, although Cal didn't always participate in the jams, according to Al Torre in the fifties, uh, but it, you know he did. On occasion throughout his career, and of course, that will take you up into the night as well. just sure. kind of it, you know, becomes convivial and guys hang out, and then you play, and then you want to go to a club, and you know like Herb Wong, the the noted jazz historian, who unfortunately recently died, uh, he was living in Menlo Park. Uh, he was a great friend of Cal's, and they, as I note in the book, um, he would see Cal's gigs at the El Matador, and then after Cal was done and this would be at night, you know, they would, you know, just bought from club to club, the jazz workshop based on street West, you know, along Broadway. And so Cal would be up all night.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: You're right. You know, I, even when he was at home, you know, he was just up into the wee hours and not getting a lot of sleep. Yeah.
1: If you were say teaching a, a short course on Cal Jader, do you have a suggestion kind of a, a top, five or a top three hit list that would give the depth and breadth of his playing? Maybe if you've never even heard of Cal Jader, is there an album you would go to to say, "This, this is one that will give you a taste of what this guy's all about?
0: Well, certainly for Cal's 50s sound, it depends on what era in his career, but for his 50s sound, I would say the there's a CD called Monterey concerts, which has, uh, both of the records that he did from that, that Carmel concert in 1959, um, which was concerted by the C volume one and two. And, uh, that really, I think in a nutshell captures what he did in the fifties, which is my favorite part of Cal's uh, career. And, um, The thing I love is that, you know, it has a mixture of the things that Cal liked. Cal wasn't as, you know, he's more famous for being a a pioneer in Latin jazz, but he also was a wonderful straight-ahead player, had a great swinging sound and all the qualities that he brought, you know, to uh, Latin jazz. He also brought to straight-ahead jazz, you know, his great harmonic sense and and his great time and just, you know, wonderful... uh, sense of swing and so that I think that record encapsulates that and also in 2008 um, the Monterey uh, Jazz Festival label uh, released uh, that 58 concert that I alluded to earlier in Monterey the first one with Buddy DeFranco and that is a wonderful concert that in its entirety is featured on that record and also various live performances that Cal did um, throughout his career at Monterey. It's called The Best of Cal Jader at the Monterey Jazz Festival of 1958 to 1980. And uh, I think those are her two, and uh, there's, of course, quite a few. Uh, in his birth period, I would recommend, you know, of course, getting Soul Sauce. That's a wonderful album. And uh, Several Shades of Jade, which... Um, he did with uh, the great arranger and composer Lalo Schifrin. Um, it's a wonderful uh, big band jazz record with a little uh, kind of Asian touch to it. Um, he used some Oriental scales. Uh, he had Lalo Schifrin had studied musicology, and Creed Taylor, Cal's producer at Verve at the time, had suggested, you know, that he try that sound, and so. Uh, Cal went with it, and it's a wonderful big band album. And uh, Cal really loved uh, Schifrin's arrangements. And I think if you, that's a that's a great one from that period. And of course, later in his career, um, when he was with Concord Lounge of the Grammy winner, um, I'd recommend that. Um, and there's an obscure album that Cal did in the nineteen in 1958 called San Francisco Mood. And I talk at length about that album in the book. It's all original material. Um, and the material is, it is inspired by various places in San Francisco. Cal wrote some of the tunes and so did uh, Jack Weeks, um, who played bass on one of the selections. And he wrote a tune called, Jack wrote a tune called uh, The Grand Avenue Suite, which is a series of vignettes. It's a real tur- jazz tour de force that song, and the the whole album, for that matter. Eddie Duran is on that album, John Mosher playing bass, and John Markham on drums, all Bay Area stalwarts, who contribute songs on that album. And it's just, it's a wonderful uh, jazz album. There are jazz waltzes, there are bluesy tunes, um, swinging tunes. I mean, it's just, it's a wonderful 50s, you know, jazz record. I would highly recommend that. You can get that on a CD titled, um, Sentimental Moods, which also includes another record Cal did during that period called Latin for Lovers, which is, uh, more of a, a mood, uh, music, uh, uh, features ballads, many like Skylark, for instance, and, uh, alone together with, uh, you know, with uh, the Cuban percussion of Globo and Santa Maria and the piano playing of Vince Scalaldi. So I would recommend those things to start off with.
1: That's great. That um, Several Shades of Jade, I must yes. have played that a thousand times, and I can remember driving through the desert at about 90 <laughs> miles an hour with that blasting. It was, I think it was like Ginza Blues or something like that. It was fantastic.
0: Oh, Tokyo Blues. Tokyo Blues. Yeah, it was
1: Fantastic, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's a wonderful really arrangements,
0: yeah. Wonderful arrangements on that, and and the musicianship, you know, Cal and 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 uh, the band that and assembled, you know, with Ernie Royal and Clark Terry and guys like that. Yeah, it's just a uh, it's a classic record.
1: Well, uh, Duncan, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I could actually talk to you for a couple more hours, because uh, I, I, I saw Cal Jader a couple times and, and really loved his music. And I think I told you in an email, my my mom used to take ballroom dancing lessons at the at his parents' studio there in, in San Mateo. Right. Uh, That's right, yeah. uh, So my connections with Cal Jader and the, the Bay Area jazz scenes go way back. You'd mentioned in, a, in an email to me that you were taking a break from lengthy projects, having read your book, that that. Uh, it was quite a project. Are you doing yeah. anything right now? Any special projects or any books or any articles now?
0: Uh, yes. Well, I, I wrote an article about um, alto saxophonist John Handy um, and his collaboration with Ali Akbar Khan, a, a road player from uh, East India. And um, I'm trying to find a publication... <laughs> that will uh, accept it. Um, it's, hard, it's, it's hard right now, but hopefully I can get that published. Also, I'm working on a revised and expanded edition of my Jader biography. Uh, there's a lot of material that I've uh, compiled that, um, that was not in the book um, You know, since I've published it. There's some things that didn't get into the book initially and then other things that I've been working on. For instance, I, I was able to through Jader's family uh, talk to Philip Smith, who was a, a lifelong friend of Cal's uh, from a real early age all the way until he died. Uh, in fact, his daughters said they spoke every day. So he lives in San Rafael. I went over to talk to him, and he had a lot of wonderful stories. And I wanted to, and you know, throughout Cal's life, particularly in his childhood. But as an adult as well, I I wanted to include those stories and I'm working on talking to some other sidemen that I didn't get a chance to to talk to and, you know, and expand on um, some of the things that I touched on in the book as well. So uh, I'm working on that and uh, also I'm writing some fiction as well. I've always wanted to write short stories.
1: Well, I wish you good luck on that, Duncan. And I enjoyed the book very much. It's reliving a lot of my past through the music, and I enjoyed so much getting the getting the backstories in the background. And I think anybody who's a jazz lover and and uh, you know wants to plug themselves. Back into an era, a bygone era. That's a fascinating one, you know. After World War II, and Cal Jader died in 1982, right? He was that's only right, 56 yeah. years old, so right. he was a young man with uh, with an enormous body of work that really, really had a profound effect. I think on 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 getting many many listeners from many walks of life to appreciate the sounds of jazz. So I think you, uh, I think you did really great work there, Duncan, and and I'm glad you did it you you honored uh, a wonderful guy and a, a great musician so uh, I think we're better for having your book out
0: there well I appreciate that thank you very much <laughs> and I, I right. appreciate uh, your you're interviewing me as well doc
1: well it's been a pleasure the book again was Cal Jader the life and recordings of the man who revolutionized Latin jazz the author was S. Duncan Reed the book was published by McFarlane Press 2013 for new books and jazz this is doc stall you've been listening to new books and jazz with doc stall our guest today was duncan reed who spoke about his new book cal jader life and recordings of the man who revolutionized latin jazz published by mcfarland and company incorporated 2013 for new books and jazz on the new books network this is doc stall